Welcome back to the Volumetric Roundtable podcast. Today, we continue our discussion about the business of virtual and volumetric production with our two industry experts, JT from XR Studios. His business is a virtual production stage focused on creating content for immersive experiences, and Piot from Arcturus. Arcturus is a software company focused on editing, compressing, and streaming volumetric content. I'm still astounded at what people make on like social media, on like TikTok videos or something, right? Like they're making really complex edits and sync points and hold frames and all sort of stuff like that using a phone mobile ecosystem to edit things. It's incredible how that's come back from like a Media 100 or an Avid or something like that, you know, not that long ago. And I think it's the same thing with virtual production and volumetric is that. When there are leaps in that tech, once you get rid of something that was a big blocker, it really changes things. And in the virtual production space, we, we worked a lot with this company called Disguise, who's really helped form a lot of the extended reality workflow where, you know, including AR and virtual set extension. When we were doing camera calibration in early 2018 and 2019 at NAB, the calibrate one camera, you know, if it was a zoom lens, it'd take all day. You know, it'd be eight or nine hours of like figuring out the intrinsics of the lens and the organic parts of it. And like, how do we, you know, look at these different focal lengths? And like, you know, it was a big, long process. And so in the first couple of years of, of XR, from my perspective, doing a project but having to add days of time for calibration setup really was a gatekeeper of bottlenecking more productions happening because there's too much time, too much cost. There was a moment last year where we worked with them and there was a bit of code that they were finally able to update, blah, blah, blah. And over the past years, things have changed. And that camera calibration process is down to like an hour for a really complex zoom lens. On the technical perspective, you're like, oh, it's an hour. It's only an hour now instead of a day. You know, isn't that great? But on the business and ecosystem side, it completely blows open the door of, you know, that budget limit of someone coming in for a day now instead of four days is huge because it creates this big snowball effect. So very specific example, but like as soon as you get these time jumps is when all of a sudden it goes crazy. You know, real time content is one of those real time rendering. So I think we're at that moment where there's enough of those things happening that for volumetric, I feel like we just need that one more jump there. And I agree with you guys. It's not that far off. And going through that as a business, how does one position themselves where, hey, this is great that we've gone from eight hours to one hour. Do we think that, I mean, and I want to speak for you, but from an industry point of view, is that something where, okay, that's our secret sauce, at least our bared entry for the next six to eight months. Then after that, we move on to something else. How does that sort of affect the, the idea that it's nascent. There's a lot of improvement. That improvement comes. And how does that affect the the idea that you're trying to operate a business at the same time and everybody's in that same position? And how do you grow the industry while also having something that is is unique to your company and what you're doing and not a complete sort of, okay, it's a free-for-all type, you know, open source environment, which nothing's wrong with that, but the, we are in the state of a business. I think that's the, you know, that's definitely the, the term free for all feels most accurate <laughs> at the moment, uh, for sure. But like, that is part of the benefit of that democratization. Like, it's this really interesting schadenfreude or like this mixed feeling of like, it's so nice to watch someone pop up a studio in the middle of nowhere and figure out something that we were dying over four years ago, right? Like, you want 
other people not to have to suffer through that. You want other people to like be able to grow and do cool things with it. But the hard part from a business perspective, like you say, is like, you know, if you build a foundation of something, assuming on these certain factors and those factors all go away or become free, you have to reinvent your business. You have to take those foundations and completely grow and change with them. So it has been a massive challenge. Um, And I think the interesting thing about it is that virtual production, especially, which I think also, you know, volumetric is probably similar to this because you have so many cameras to consider and LED studios and LED stages doing virtual production in camera VFX, whatever you want to call it. It's really interesting because it's a huge mix of software and hardware. It's really physical. You know, you're buying LED screens or renting LED screens and cameras and lights and power and internet, like all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a really interesting mix of like, it's the mentality of a software startup, which typically has low overheads. Uh, and a lot of those people who are on a software standpoint are raising much of VC money or, you know, bootstrapping and are doing whatever they need to do and buying millions of dollars worth of equipment. And I'm just a little concerned sometimes and a lot of people are considering depreciation or how you amortizing those costs or what's the ROI of that particular tile. And like, you know, there's a lot of stuff to all of a sudden get into the hardware game. And so I think that's what's really interesting is what we're seeing is a software driven mentality as a business, as an industry, but with a lot of overheads involved. And I don't know if those two things work very well together. Yeah, it makes a a thousand percent. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it is a very interesting time to be an entrepreneur in this space or a small business in space because I've gone through so many software booms and busts. And now you can talk to some folks who understand exactly what you just said, JT. And then those who treat it like the last 20 years and at some point you're going to have hardware that is now outdated and you can't change it. There's an old saying that it, it's software. You don't like it, change it. It's not hardware, right? If it's hardware, you don't like it. You're stuck with it. And with what we're seeing in the chip business and even in the camera business, it may not be called Moore's Law, but we're moving to the point where 18 months from now, that hardware is out of date. And you've built a, your tech stack and your whole business around something that you now can't just sort of change. And I'm really curious to see how people are you know, navigating those waters and what to do with that old hardware, you know, come three years from now. And I don't know if you guys have heard of anything, but it, it's a conundrum. Yeah, I mean, there's the, there's one thing for me, and I'd love to hear your thought on this as well, but like... There's one thing that's really nice that I have in the back of my head for all these humans getting into like these screen stuff is that we're taking a technology that was not created for this and we're bringing it into a studio and using it for, you know, camera based work. The nice thing is that if everything goes crazy and let's say, I don't know, one of you guys comes up with something tomorrow that makes LED screens completely irrelevant for virtual production, those screens can go back right out into the world into what they were built to do, you know, stuff for the human eye, right? Concerts, events, buildings, you know, whatever. Like there's going to be, there would be big fallout and big problems, but it's not like investing in like a hard drive in the mid nineties that became irrelevant, you know, months later, like there's still good use for that. So there's a little bit of peace there, but I'm really curious with your guys' thoughts on the camera side, like, Cameras have always changed and grown. And I think the volumetric community, from what I've seen from the outside, has always been super clever 
in MacGyvering existing tech together, you know, and strapping them together to make something. Is that kind of the case at the moment? Like how specialized are you having to be? Or are you seeing like, if you built a studio with a hundred, you know, captured cameras, are you going to be in big trouble six months from now or is it lasting longer? Right now, it's a combination of both, um, you know, taking off the shelf stuff to customization and and it's a one off or maybe it's a five off. Right. There's five of this in, in the world. Um, however, I think the road to scalability, and I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on this, is the industry, the, the production industry is really good at taking something and then building a box for it. So whether that's a, you know, uh, an HDMI to SDI converter box or a an encoding, video encoding box or whatever it may be. And that box just does one thing. I like to think of a DaVinci's Resolve, right? The, the color correction system. I think that's where we get scalability. It may be specialized, but you can actually build that hardware at a, a lower cost point because you're not trying to build a general purpose machine and then add software to it. You're building it to do one thing and it, and that's repeatable. And I'm, I'm not saying we're going to get to this point because I don't think we should. But you look at broadcast sports today, the industry is already there to the point where if you watch certain major sports on TV, you're going to get 720 as your resolution because that infrastructure was already built out and it's reliable. I think that's where volumetric is going to go so that it can actually scale to the point where it is democratized. And maybe we'll get a little bit of a software as a, a as a component to it where you can take a, a camera and reuse it for lots of stuff. But I think that's that's where it's headed or that's where it will go to get to the scalability that's bigger than, say, a $6,000 capture stage using connects to an $8 million stadium build out. I, I think there, there's a there's a fine line. A $6,000 capture stage for one person may seem like it's not much, but it only does one thing. I think that needs to get down to a couple hundred dollars and then the stadium needs to get down to $150,000. So at least I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I mean, isn't that just like normal evolution of hardware? Uh, it, it's it's just it's just time. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And yep. yeah, uh, this is something we hear about often. Um, and and we are strictly a, a software play um, initially. That was by design. Um, you know, now we're embracing it. Certainly, uh, the the idea that like you know that that you have to swap out hardware regularly is is. Uh, painful. Um, you know, we haven't seen necessarily a lot of that on, on the volumetric side. Um, and that's really just because the industry is so nascent anyway. Um, but the, um, but yes, you know, uh, it, there is, you know, depending on how high, uh, of a quality you want to get out of the, the shoots themselves, the volumetric shoots, you know, yeah, you're, you're going to, you're going to spend a bunch on, on the hardware. Um, the hope is that, you know, we're starting to see a lot of really clever experiments of like how does software step in and help solve those problems that uh, to, to kind of 
I guess, not require the, the latest and greatest camera in order to kind of get the latest and greatest results. You know, that's where kind of Nerf and AI kind of step in and kind of help solve some of those problems where you might then require less hardware and depend more on software to get those solutions that you're looking for. Um, you know, I, I don't know where that's going to net out in terms of a longer term, but I certainly feel like that's where this is going. Um, and it's... That part is very interesting to be paying attention to as well. I don't feel like we're going to have solutions, you know, ready commercial, ready to use commercial solutions for that for a little while still. But it's great to see um, that that is the direction that this is going. So from other challenges, we've spoken about the workflow challenges are there, the capital costs and the equipment versus dealing with just the software industry, and then the growth of the industries. I guess then with all that in mind, where are the opportunities for a business getting into this space or already in this space over the next, say, six months? And then after that, the next 18 months. And how do you advise anybody that's on the fence about getting started or even working with a partner to get in and and any advice along those lines? In the same way, we talk a lot with educational programs in schools and stuff like that. I'm sure that comes up in the volumetric world often as well as like people are seeing the flashy tech and something shiny going, oh my gosh, we need to get into this. We need to train people for this. And then you get into a conversation with the university about investing in millions of dollars for virtual production or volumetric. And then it's in a state-based procurement system and they don't get all that stuff until three years later and everything has changed, right? When I speak with educational groups about it, I think it's just really important to take the same mindset for starting a new business. The business has to be based off of accepting change and growing with change and harnessing new technology versus, hey, I'm going to focus on this one specific flavor of this tech at this moment because I think it will just change super quickly. If you go into any of this, you have to be flexible in a way that I think is hard to compare to a lot of industries right now. Virtual production and volumetric capture are both based off of 20 or 30 different pieces of technology that you're relying upon them all working and speaking together. If one new player comes in and replaces 15 of those, that's something that happens what feels like on a monthly basis right now. The truth we had six months ago is not the truth now. That's something if someone's getting into this in 12 to 18 months or even the next six months, you just have to be ready and able to change and to grow and build a structure of a company. And we're, we're having to evolve right now. We, we, we change weekly and it's quite disruptive as a business and as a team. And we're trying to figure it out just like everyone else. But one thing that holds true is that you have to be flexible. Couldn't agree more, JT. I mean, that's a solid view. Flexibility is key. I'm glad you brought up Media 100, JT, because I remember when I was in school, there wasn't the Media 100 when I started, and you had to go into an edit bay, and maybe you could get access to the advanced edit bay where you can do some really neat fades and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, my junior year, somebody put together the opening to a TV show, and I was like, how did this freshman be able to do that? And it was just editing on a Media 100, and it really did change everything. And I... I was thinking, are we in some ways repeating something like that where it was NLE, 
Then it was the move from film to digital. And each of those opportunities changed the industry. There's no more dailies. The uh, growth of an NLE editor and how much you can grow a career around that really spiked. And now it's sort of leveling off. Is there anything we can look back and then use that to move forward? Maybe there's something there in the content industry that you saw too that we can leverage. Actually, one thing that, that I compare it to often, I don't know if you guys know um, Tim Moore from View Studios or View Technologies down in Florida. He's done a bunch of um, LED studios. He has a company called Diamond View, uh, which is a commercial production company. And he caught on exactly at that moment when in the camera space, when all of a sudden DSLRs were able to do video. And if you guys remember this moment, like the Canon 5D, that's... um. I'm quite young. That's when I was in college. Um, but, uh, but when that happened, you know, for me, I remember I did my college thesis film on a Canon 5D and it allowed me to do something that looked like something that would have cost like literally 10 times the cost. And I think can he, he pointed that out as well is that when something changes so drastically, but the quality remains the same is when things get really interesting and disruptive. And I think that's kind of like, you know, a lot of rental shops and camera teams and people like that, like it really, really interrupted the production space when all of a sudden some guy with a $2,000 camera can make something that looks like a $100,000 production with the full crew and what at the time was still kind of closer to film than the digital cameras. Learning from stuff like that when something changes at like a 10x factor is I think what you see on the other side of it, if you look back in history are the people again, like who adapted and who changed Versus kind of crossing their arms and saying like, oh, no, that's a toy. You know, that's not really going to work. I do think there's a lot of learning, but it is interesting that it does repeat itself because that's just the nature of humans. But I do think if you can harness new technology versus being too stuck in it, I think that's the real win. But it's easy to say and hard to do. <laughs> JT, I love that, actually, because it makes me think about there's a second piece to all this. Denny, you touched on at the very beginning. Certainly, JT talked a bit of, a bit about it, too, is we're seeing not just a technology revolution and like how we're using tech and what that tech can get us to accomplish, but we're switching from a, from a 2D world into a 3D world. And... So it's almost like there's two revolutions happening at the same time. And that complicates things that much more, but it also makes things that much more exciting uh, because we are evolving. We're moving into a new phase, something that we've, we have not seen before or experienced before. And a lot of that is so fresh and new that a big part of why this has been slow going isn't quite the right word, but like people kind of learning that these volumetric and volumes result in three-dimensional experiences, not just 2D. So like most of the things that we talked about today kind of ultimately get applied into a 2D environment. But because there is this other thing that's happening at the same time, it, it kind of amplifies this whole conversation into... Uh, you know, what is, what is our, our spatial world look like? And how does the stuff that we're creating today kind of apply into that new paradigm that is really, really fun to think about? I was going to say, it's just, I mean, you guys are way more in the biometric space and have 
you can see that more clearly. Whereas for us, it kind of trickles in and people see like, oh, there's going to be a hologram. You know, I think a lot of people think that volumetric creates just the 3D asset. And I think that's super interesting. But something that doesn't quite hit a lot of people is that it creates virtual camera freedom. Like there was that, that TED talk that, um, probably a peer of you guys, Diego Perleski did, where was the Western scene that they filmed? Yeah. And, and Greece and stuff like that. Like, yeah, like it's quite, it's quite old at this point, but like there was this, this amazing moment where that kind of went a little bit more viral. And I think because the, all he honed in on was like, Oh, look, I can move the camera anywhere after the fact and have the same scene, but tell 20 different stories with it. And I think that paradigm shift is so big for the human brain that like we're not quite there yet because <laughs> we've been used to doing something one way, like you said, for a hundred years. So I think it's going to be moments like that that really jump and change things. And I think that it, it's adding in 3D, it's all in real time and you have camera freedom. Like it's a lot of changes for people to catch up with in a very short amount of time, but it's super exciting. The thing you said about TikTok and what they're creating with that, and then you take an audience that's grew up in 3D video games, and then you give them the ability to do both at the same time, where there is a virtual camera. I think that we have a generation that can actually write in the form of video in 3D versus actually write in the form of a language, whether it's English, French, or German. And I'm really excited about that. Well, thank you. This was a very lively discussion and we touched upon a lot of different topics. Piot and JT, thank you. Any final words you want to leave us on? Uh, I think for me, I mean, this is such an exciting thing to talk about because there are so many similarities in between the virtual production space and the volumetric video space because they're all starting to mush together. And I really like that you're trying to say, you know, what can we learn? You know, what can we... What can volumetric video learn from the wild roller coaster that virtual production as a whole has gone through in the last three years? And I think if people are clever and get ahead of it, there's some opportunities to really, you know, you know, maybe maybe not fall into some of the pitfalls that some people have fallen into in a new and fast-paced industry. I think the other thing about all of this, why it's great to keep in touch and why it's so connected is that, like we were saying earlier on the call or on the chat, volumetric video is a huge part of virtual production in the future because we're working in a volumetric ecosystem. Everything's becoming 3D, props, assets, all sorts of things. And so being able to insert more production to that space that is volumetric is going to be so valuable for on LED stages and, and beyond with wearables and new spatial computing and all sorts of stuff. So it's a really exciting time and I'm glad we're seeing the parallels between both of them. Uh, and then, and absolutely. I mean, this was, this was a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. And honestly, like this is, this is where all of this gets so exciting for me. Um, I, I do believe that volumetric video will replace video as we know it today. I think it's a natural evolution. It, it's just going to happen. Uh, the question is just how quickly, uh, and actually I'll, I'll leave, I'll part on this note, uh, as one of my favorite characters would say, this is the way. Very cool. And it all starts with the Mandalorian effect. I love it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. And if you are interested in joining the Volumetric Format Association, visit volumetricformat.org forward slash join. It's free to join as a community member. So to learn more about the VFA, that address again is volumetricformat.org forward slash join.